Hi, my name's Stuart, and um, I have the privilege of reading the Bible passage to you today, and I just want to warn you that um, I was born in Victoria, and I learned to speak English differently to some other people. (laughs) So when I read this Bible passage, you have to bear with my accent on some of these (laughs) names today. But let's... Let's see what God wants to say to us through this genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Let's read the scripture together. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Selmon, Selmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Gehoram. Gehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Ebud, Ebud the father of Elachim, Elachim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Ochum, Achim, Achim, sorry, Achim the father of Elihud. Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. <laughs> I've never heard someone get a, an ovation for uh, reading the Bible before. There you go, Stuart. Well done. Amy Harper Bellafontaine is six years old and her mother thinks she's the most important person in the whole world. She is. Anthony Carter doesn't think he could ever be in a worse place than death row. He's wrong. FBI agent Brad Walkus thinks 
something beyond imagination is coming. It is. A tidal wave of darkness ready to engulf the world and Amy is the only person who can stop it. Who wants to read the book now? <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but this, this is my kind of book. It's, it's a blurb uh, from the passage. Uh, fair warning, if you do want to read the book though, uh, this book is about 960 pages long and it's only the first of three books. It's in a trilogy, so you're in for the long haul if you go for it. Uh, but that's the blurb. The first thing you read when they pick up the book is that, that back blurb. Uh, and it's attention grabbing, isn't it? It's supposed to be. Uh, you, gotta, you ask yourself the question, what's going to happen now? And that's what a good book is supposed to do, right? It's aiming to grab you right from the beginning, get you in so you'll buy the book and keep going. So it's got to make you wonder then, what was Matthew thinking? We just read that first, the first bit of the book of Matthew. It's part of the Bible, kind of like a biography of Jesus' life. Um, it's written by a guy named Matthew. Pretty obvious, right? He was one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus. And the first thing we read when we pick up this book is a long and tedious family history. Now, I'm not a psychic, but I think I know what was going on in your mind while Stuart was reading there. You're all thinking... I'm glad that wasn't me. <laughs> Except for Stuart, who was thinking, why did they choose me today? Uh, but the second thing that goes to our head is, well, I mean, how boring. What a, what a dull way to start a book. I mean, who even are all these people? And what's, what's the point? Could Matthew not think of a better way to begin this? But family trees, they, they can be revealing, can't they? And Jesus is no different. In fact, his family tree gives us hints. Right at the start, before he's even born, we get hints about Jesus, who he is, and what his purpose is, why he's come. All in a list of names like that. Uh, as we start, there's something we, we need to clarify first, though, uh, and it's this. We're not actually getting a complete family tree here, like, like we do it today. There are gaps it does say uh, person one was the father of person two, and, and so on and so on and so on. But, but that word father, it can mean uh, someone like further up the chain, like a grandfather or, or a great-grandfather. So we're not getting a complete family tree here, but what we're getting is links. We're showing links. Matthew is intending us to show us some important people in Jesus' family history. And so today we're going to meet two important fathers and then five kind of strange Mothers. All right, let's get into it. Firstly then, two important fathers. The two important fathers we meet are Abraham and David. You can't miss it. It's there in the very first verse. Verse 1, check it out what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, straight away, our attention is drawn to these two fathers. We haven't even gotten into the genealogy yet, but their names are mentioned already. And they're mentioned here because they're very, very significant players. Uh, let's, let's look at both of them. Firstly, firstly Abraham. Uh, Abraham lived around, around about 2,000 years before Jesus, so 4,000 years ago from today. And he didn't really have a hometown. He grew up in a place called Ur, which is... Uh, that's a fun name for a place, isn't it? What do you call a place? Uh, let's call it Ur. Um, he grew up in Ur, which is probably around um, Iraq or Iran there. Uh, but then, after a while, he moved with his dad, his nephew, and his wife. They moved to Haran, which is kind of modern-day Turkey, which in those days, I mean, that's a pretty big move to have made. 
But while they're in Haran, Abraham's dad dies. Um, and, and sometime after that, that's when things really change for Abraham. They change for Abraham because at that point in Abraham's life, God speaks to him. God speaks to him and tells him, go. Don't stay here in Haran. Go to a different place, a place that I'm going to show you. And God says, I'm going to do amazing things with you, Abraham. By this stage, Abraham is uh, 75 years old, got no kids. But, but here are the promises that God says to him. Here's what God says. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make your family into a huge nation of people, multitude. And I'm going to give them a chunk of land that can be their land. And this is the best bit. Abraham, everyone, all the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed through you and your family. That's massive, isn't it? Here is Abraham, who's a nobody, uh, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to use you and do something great through you. And God keeps his promises to Abraham. Despite Abraham's old age, he has a son, Isaac. And from there, the family kind of grows and grows and grows. And it doesn't happen overnight, but in 600, 700 years, the family is a large nation living in their own land. And so if we go back to that checklist of promises, big family, tick. Uh, Got their own land, tick. A blessing to everyone? No, actually, or, or at least not yet. So all through the, the Old Testament, there are glimpses where Abraham's descendants, you think, now it's going to happen. Now they'll be that blessing to everyone. But it never really gets there. Glimpses, moments where you think, and then it just kind of doesn't happen. And then as we begin Matthew, the start of the New Testament, we're reminded God said he was going to bless the world through Abraham's family. And here's Jesus, a son of Abraham, part of the family. Maybe he's the one. Jesus is a son of Abraham. He's also a son of David. Uh, David grew up in Bethlehem in Israel. It's just a little bit south of Jerusalem. So uh, David came about a 1,000 years after Abraham, so 3,000 years before us, about a 1,000 years before Jesus. Um, Rough figures. And David doesn't start out life as anyone important. He's the youngest of his family, got a lot of older brothers who seem to be stronger, fitter, better looking than him. And so most of David's years, of his younger years, are spent uh, looking after the family's flock of sheep. But eventually, through a whole series of circumstances, David actually rises to be king over the country, the king of Israel. He's got a good military mind. He knows how to organise things well. But according to the Bible, the big thing he has in his favour is that he's very different from the king that came before. The king that came before didn't really trust God, but David does. And eventually, David's uh, been a king for a while, and he decides, I want to do something big for God, something nice for God. I'm going to build God a temple, a a house. You think this is good and you think, oh, it ticks to David. But then God says, no, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Not a physical house. David already had a great big palace. But God says, I'm going to build you a, a dynasty. 
a dynasty of kings, your sons, they're going to be on the throne just like you are. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And then God says, in fact, someone from your family will always be on the throne. Check out this part of the Bible. This is where God makes the promise to David. It's from the Old Testament, a book called 2 Samuel. God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Again, it's a huge promise here, massive promise to David. But as you read through the Old Testament, it just seems like it doesn't happen. Uh, David's grandson, so just kind of two generations after David, David's grandson loses most of the kingdom to a rival king. Uh, and then over time, uh, the na- that nation, David's nation, becomes reliant on alliances with other nations that are kind of their neighbours, and they need these to stop the ancient world superpowers from coming in and invading them. But eventually, about 400 years after David, one of those superpowers does come in. Babylon comes in, uh, invades, takes out the nation, and carries off most of the remaining Israelites in exile to Babylon. And from that point on, nobody in David's family is on the throne. And you think, has the promise failed here? But again, we start the New Testament, we open the book of Matthew, and we meet David, a son... Sorry, we meet Jesus, a son of David. And we think... Is he the one? See, right at the start of the book, Matthew is showing us Jesus links back to these guys. He's in their family. Could he be the one, the one to bring the fulfilment of those promises? Finally, are we looking at the guy? But in fact, Matthew doesn't just hint at this. He kind of outright says it. Look again at verse 1. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah is the same word for Christ. They, they mean the same thing. And it's not a surname for Jesus. It's not that he was Jesus Christ, like I am Scott Westwood. Uh, no, Christ, Messiah, it's, it's a title. It's a title of the person that God promised would come. The one who would be king. The one who would bring God's blessing across the world. And Matthew is telling us now this is the pivotal moment in human history because that person is here. He has arrived, and that one is Jesus. I wonder, just a couple of quick reflections here then. I wonder, how often do you think of Jesus as a king? Or not just as a king, but as as your king? And if he really is king, I wonder, how do you think you ought to treat him at that point? And if he really does bring God's blessing, can you afford to miss out on it? Can you afford to miss out on him? Uh, Here's another question. What kind of king would Jesus be? What kind of ruler? That's pretty important, right? You don't want a ruler who's a tyrant or a king who's just self-serving. What kind of king will Jesus be? This is where Jesus' Jesus' mothers are really important. Did you notice 
uh, five of Jesus' mothers were mentioned, five strange mothers. They're strange for two reasons. Uh, Firstly, back then, women weren't really included in genealogies like this. Um, uh, So in some sense, then they stand out like a sore thumb. What are they doing here? But secondly, these women are, are all associated with some kind of scandal. Take a look. Let's jump into it. Um, The first mother of Jesus is mentioned. Her name is Tamar. She's mentioned in verse 3. talks about Judah, who's the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Uh, Judah actually started out as Tamar's father-in-law. Judah's son was married to Tamar. But then Judah's son died. Tamar's husband, he died. And Judah actually does, does does a lot of wrong. Basically, to cut the story short, he leaves her destitute, so she has now no future. Anyhow, some time passes and uh, Tamar is sitting at the entrance to a city. She's got a veil on, so she's disguised. uh, And Judah happens to walk past at this moment. He sees Tamar, but he doesn't notice it's her. He mistakes her for a prostitute. And he sleeps with her. And she falls pregnant. She's not married anymore, so obviously when people start to see the baby bump, they know here is an adulteress. And they bring this news to Judah, and he says, we know what must happen now. She must die. It's the death penalty. It's horrible, horrible. This is hypocrisy at its worst, isn't it? But the story's not done there. There's another twist. Because Tamar says, I can show you who the father is. It's Judah. He's struck down by guilt. Uh, She's allowed to live and she has twin sons. Horrible, horrible. What a messy situation. It's the kind of thing where if this happens in your family, right, you, you don't talk about it. You put it in the vault and you leave it there. Except Matthew brings it back out for us. And that's the same kind of thing that happens with the other mothers that are mentioned as well. Uh, Rahab is mentioned in verse 5, which is strange because, again, she was known as a prostitute. Ruth is mentioned in verse 5 as well, which, again, is strange. Um, uh, in, in Ruth's time, uh, it was a harvest season. A wealthy landowner is um, sleeping in the sheds with his other workers. And Ruth comes and sleeps at the bottom of his feet. He wakes up in the middle of the night and there is a woman and he has to send her away uh, uh, before daybreak to stop the rumour mill going into overdrive. Eventually they get married, by the way. But this was a scandalous kind of thing. Another mother, Bathsheba. Perhaps she's probably the best known to us in in, in, uh, modern day times. She's mentioned in verse 6, although she's not really mentioned. Look at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba's not even mentioned by name. It's to highlight the fact that she she had been married to another man, not to David, but David took her as his wife and then he had her her true husband, Uriah. David had him killed in battle. Just a, a messy, messy family tree full of scandal. And Mary's actually no different. She's the Mary's the fifth mother. Mary's no different. Like, like some of these women, she's done nothing wrong. But look at how verse 16 puts it. Uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Notice there, Joseph is never called Jesus' father. 
It's simply that he's Mary's husband and she's Jesus' mother. Can you imagine the, the ancient rumour mill going crazy over this? Here's Mary, young, unmarried and pregnant. And perhaps that's not a bigger scandal today, but back in those times. In fact, history tells us that rumours did spread. Uh, this is a guy named Celsus. He lived about 150 years after Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have a sculpture of your face made like that? No? Uh, this is Celsus. He wrote a book called The True Word. It's a book written uh, against Christianity. This is always reasons why I think Christianity is not good. And in it, he says that Mary got pregnant by a Roman guy whose name was Pantera. And when Pantera found out that Mary was pregnant, he kicked her out. And that's when Joseph comes along and, and Jesus is born. But you see that the rumour mill has been in overdrive for Mary for over 150 years. Here we are in Matthew. And we've got five strange mothers. It's not that the Bible is having a go at these women. In many instances, it's, it's the blokes who, who do the wrong thing. But these, these, these mothers, they, they, they highlight moments of scandal, the messy background. These are the skeletons in the closet that you don't bring out to show everybody. Except, except Matthew does. Uh, my, my grandfather died in 2011. I uh, wasn't living at home. I, went, I had to go home for the funeral. I wasn't living at home at the time. And after the funeral, there was a wake in our house. Uh, you know, all the family members are there. Some of them I knew really well. Some of them, you know, I barely remember you, but your face looks kind of familiar. I guess that's what happens with family, right? Uh, and it's a bit of fun because at these moments, all the stories come out. Once the grieving process happens, it's part of the part, and part of the grieving process is the stories coming out. And the big story came out that day. Uh, I was sitting at one end of the house with a bunch of relatives. Some of, I don't think I knew the person who was telling the story, but um, she told a story about how my grandfather's parents, so my great-grandparents, they actually had to have a shotgun wedding. Uh, he got her pregnant before they were married and the father kind of put the hard word on them. I'd never heard this before. I was in my 20s, completely new to me. And as the story is being told up this end of the house, we were very, someone was very clear, now you can't go and talk about it in front of that other person down the other end of the house because they won't have you say anything. It was a scandal back in the day and you don't go around airing your family's dirty laundry like that, do you? Except... That's exactly what Matthew's doing here. He's drawing attention to these mothers, these mothers of Jesus. And why does he do this? It's because he wants to show us what kind of king Jesus is. He wants to show us the kind of king that Jesus is. Uh, in my household, me and my wife, Pip, we've been watching uh, the latest season of The Crown recently. Anyone else watch it? View of the Crown, yeah, a few people. Um, my favourite episode so far was about a guy who broke into the palace because he wanted to talk to the Queen and there was no other way he could do it, so he breaks in. Um, if you haven't got to that episode yet, look forward to it. Um, but actually, the story is really all about what kind of people are allowed to meet the Queen. See, the royal handlers, they, they make sure only certain people uh, are there, only certain people get to shake their hands and have a little conversation. And these people are always very prim and proper. These are the people who won't cause any problems. 
Make it nice and easy for the queen to come along to shake this hand, say hello, move along to the next person, and, and no worries at all. Jesus' family tree shows us he is nothing like that. Right? He's nothing like that. Right from the beginning here, we meet a king, but he's a king who who identifies himself with those who've got a past, to those who've got a history, those who've got scandals in their background, those whose lives are not perfect but are messy. Uh, did you ever think of Jesus in those terms? That he identifies himself with those whose lives aren't perfect. In the genealogy, it's, um, it's built around three different sections. And in each section... God is saying something new is happening here. Something new is happening here. The first section began with Abraham because something new was happening with Abraham. God was giving great promises to the world through Abraham's family. And the second section began with David because, again, God was doing something new with David. God promised that his chosen king was going to come through David's family line. And the third section then begins with exile because, again, the exile is something new, but, but now not in a good way. With the exile, the nation has been taken away to Babylon. People are no longer there. And it looks like all the good promises that God had given them are now lost. But then along comes Jesus, the Messiah. And he starts something completely new again. He brings God's blessing. He is God's promised king. He reverses the loss that the exile brought. But he doesn't just do this for those who have a pristine past. He does it for everyone, come what may. Because Jesus' family tree shows us that he's the king who's come to bless everyone, and and, and even those, or perhaps especially those with their messy past. I wonder, how do you feel about your past? In your life, are there things you'd prefer to keep? to keep hidden away, things you'd like it if other people didn't know about you, things that you've said or done or even thought that you don't want anyone to know about. Look, if we're honest, isn't there part of that in all of us, part of us that we'd like to hide, that we'd rather other people didn't see about us? Did you know... Jesus is still for you. A common thing that people say is something like this, I couldn't be a Christian, I'm just not good enough, I'm not up to standard. Here's the thing though, you don't have to be. It's not about your performance, friends. You don't have to be good enough for Jesus because Jesus is good enough for you. His grace is enough for you. So as a church, we just want to be a place where you don't have to pretend to be perfect. You don't have to put on an act to try and pretend you've got it all together. Jesus identifies himself with those who have messed up in life. And and for us, look, as a church, let's be honest again, that's us too. We've all messed up in life. Maybe you feel like your past is too much for Jesus, but he says, no, it's not. It's not. Isn't this the kind of God you ought to check out? kind of God unlike any other, kind of God that would be good to get to know, to see if you could give your life over to him. We'd love to help you do that as a church. Um, over Christmas we're going to keep 
meeting Jesus in the book of Matthew. We'd love you to join us on Christmas morning. We're going to have a um, short, special, outside version of church. It's going to be fun, different. Uh, Nine o'clock again, so a bit early, so you can get away to your family lunches or whatever you're doing. Uh, If you are coming, though, bring bring a camping chair. We're going to be out over here, undercover, under shade, but it'll be a bit of fun. Come back again. Check out Jesus with us. Next Sunday, we'll be here at 10 a.m. again. Then in January, actually, in January, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to see what God has to say about some of the big challenges that we're facing. Uh, Earlier in the year, we asked our friends this question. What's the biggest challenge that you think we're facing? And we've taken the top four responses to that, top four things, top four challenges that our friends said. And in general, we're going to kind of just dive into those top four. They're all up there on the screen now. It's going to start start on the 10th of, of January. We're going to ask, the biggest challenge we're facing is that our environment's suffering. Look into that. So just be an easy way to get to see more of Jesus, to, to, to look at what he's like, to check out who he is. Look, I just want to say, we'd love you to join us for that. Because this really is a different Jesus, a different kind of God than we expect, isn't it? He's not simply here for those with a good pedigree who, who, who come nice and easy, who are squeaky clean and who won't cause any problems. Jesus he identifies himself with those who are broken, with those who've made mistakes, who've messed up in the past. We don't need to be perfect to come to Jesus, friends, because Jesus is God's king, the one who brings God's blessing, and he brings it to even those who don't deserve it. Why don't I pray? Let me pray for us. God, at this time around Christmas, we remember Jesus come into the world. We thank you that he came for all of us. Not just those who are good or put on a good act, but for all of us, especially those of us who have messed up our lives. We give you praise that he would come even for us and ask that you'd help us to get to know him, and trust him and live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.